It's just not fair. It's not fair. Have you heard that recently? I heard that recently because I said it uh, to my own children as we were watching some of uh, The Voice earlier on in this week. Maybe you've seen that uh, show. And it's at the point now in The Voice where the four popular singers, they're the judges, and they have chosen their teams. And now they, they've grouped two together and they work on a song uh, with, with two of the folks on their teams. And, um, and now and, and these two folks have to sing this song as part of a battle. So they've been working together, they've been making harmony, and they take turns with uh, the melody, and then they have to battle, and the coach who has been working with them has to pick one of them to continue on in this in this show. Uh, and these folks have incredible voices. I mean, it really is uh, fun to watch how, how talented they are. But after the song is over, one of them has to go home. And one of them continues on uh, in the show. And that's when I slapped my chair and I said, it's not fair. They're both so good. They both worked so hard. They're both extremely talented. They've got careers in music ahead of them. And, and the coaches admit this. They say they've exceeded all expectations, but it's not fair. And uh, you know, we see this a lot. It's not just in The Voice, um, but it's in you know, maybe a lot of other shows, and I'm not uh, endorsing one way or the other, but um, America's Got Talent, uh, Dancing with the Stars, Survivor even. Somebody has to go right? A choice has to be made. So I think, well, maybe it makes sense for us then to project this type of decision-making paradigm on God. He's the most authoritative being we know. He has to make decisions in his ordering of the world. He has to consider all the data and rack and, and stack according to his standard and you know, those that, that move on to eternal life in glory and those who don't make the cut and spend eternity under his uh, eternal punishment. There's a lot of tough choices the divine judge has. Do you think that'd be hard? I mean, if he's really fair? It's a very common way for us to, uh, to think about God and our relationship to him. But you know what? If God is fair and acts only by his perfect standard of righteousness and justice, then we might as all, well, just get up, leave, and head back home. Um, you did not get out of bed this morning. You did not put down some breakfast, get the kids into the car, drive across town to celebrate God being fair. There's nothing to celebrate there. Nothing. Nothing to look forward to. If God is fair, then every man, woman, and child is rightfully condemned for eternity under the righteous wrath of God. That would be fair. See, there, there's no battle to move on in this game. There's no one righteous, no one who, who comes close to meeting the standard of the divine judge. If God is fair, he just wipes his hands of humanity and we're done. Is that why you're here? Is that why we celebrate? 
It'd be pretty twisted if it were. Um, no, thankfully, God is not fair. He is gracious. The creator God owes his creation. He owes humanity. He owes you and me nothing. Except the just punishment for our sin. We don't want fairness from God. We need mercy and grace. And I trust that's what brought you here this morning. So we're going to explore what sola gratia means under two, two main headings. God's grace is his favor toward us, uh, and it's his provision for us. His favor toward us, his provision uh, for us, the provision really flows out of his favor. Uh, But there's some things we need to understand, or at least presume, to try and comprehend this marvelous grace of God. There's no possible way for us to have any part in our salvation It must be God's grace from beginning to end. And Paul's words in Ephesians 2 really help us understand why God must do this from beginning to end. God looks with favor on those who are already dead, doomed, dead in our sin. And I think the the picture of a corpse is a really appropriate and powerful picture. Contrary to the decorations that you're seeing this time of year, A corpse can do nothing. It cannot breathe. It cannot walk. It cannot talk. It is powerless. This is humanity enslaved to sin, dead, with no expectation but the wrath of God. Uh, We see in chapter 2, verse 3. But in that same verse, Paul says, among whom we all once lived. So so we're dead, verse 1, 2 verse 1, but living in the state of deadness. So we can be physically alive, yet dead to God and under his wrath. Church, the majority of folks that you and I know outside of the church are in this condition. I'm not excluding everyone in this room. To carry out the desires of the flesh and pursue what the world says is worth pursuing, trying to keep up with the Joneses and all of that. It's to live as a dead man walking, a dead woman walking. I think it's kind of a creepy irony. It weighs on our hearts. When you consider what the culture is celebrating just a a couple of days from now, twisting something that that had a history and had a, a unique purpose and now using it to serve ourselves. And I'm not sentencing everyone who participates in the, you know, the cultural holiday of Halloween. But this is what dead people do in sin. It's what the believer is doing in sin. Kind of almost going back to the crypt. Um, twisting, distorting, abusing reality. Which is um, the truth of God. And so many will assume that if God is fair, and I, I feel... I feel good about myself, then God too must be pleased with me. That's why we see such an emphasis, such a value being placed on high self-esteem around us. Thinking positively about ourselves. You've earned it. You're worth it. And if we're not careful, we can cloak this in Christianese. God loves you. You can do it. Everything's going to be okay. God loves you. Smile, God loves you. 
if we just feel good about ourselves and enjoy all those things that make us feel good, then all is well. I see a sign not too far from here. In front of a, it's a flashy sign. You matter to God. Does that make you feel good? I like that. You matter to God. But God's word here in Ephesians 2, go to Romans chapter 3, the entire history of the Old Testament shows us clearly that all is not well. Low self-esteem is not our problem. It's usually quite the opposite. We think far too highly of ourselves. Original sin, born under the wrath of God, is the problem. We indulge ourselves in the, in the desires of the flesh and the mind. And, and I think it's easy for us to identify the open immorality here, but how else do we indulge ourselves? Indulge our minds. Think about the ways we feed our pride or feed our faces in gluttony. Maybe the way we feed our anger or discontentment. We are dead unless God changes us, unless he does something out of his grace. When speaking uh, through the prophet Ezekiel to the people of Israel, uh, they're captive in Babylon, and God does some pretty far out things uh, to work his point home, to bring it home. Takes Ezekiel into this valley of very dry bones. Holy Halloween for the prophet, I guess. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, but you know, here's, here's a paraphrase of Ezekiel 37. You know, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Can they do anything? Can you picture Ezekiel as seeing this laid out before him? You know, no, God, you know, and I've got a feeling you're going to show me. Prophesy to the bones, Ezekiel. Oh, and when you do, tell them, hear the word of the Lord. I will breathe life into you. I will cause flesh to cover you. You shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. The people of Israel, they're exiled. Dead. Powerless, dry bones unless God works in them. Delivering them. He has a history of doing that. Giving them life. Apart from the work of God, there is no one who seeks him. No one who wants uh, him. No ability to do this. This is where uh, Jonathan Edwards has a beautiful contribution uh, in his freedom of the will. Uh, As human beings, we are created with freedom. Freedom of the will, which means we're able to freely choose what it is we want. And guess what? We're always going to choose what we think is best. We're always going to do this. So in our sin, in our deadness as children of wrath, we think sin is best. So we're always going to choose it. And we will always choose it unless God changes the way we think, unless he changes our very desires. We have no understanding, no desire for spiritual things on our own. Don't you feel like you need some good news right now? Maybe a pick-me-up? We we sit in our our deadness of sin here. That's what the first three verses are intended to do. It's not a pretty picture. 
Yeah, I, th I think I'm going to talk about it. Just about every Sunday morning, uh, one of the more seasoned members of the congregation that uh, I served up north, um, she would come through and she'd shake my hand and, and tell me that her sins were forgiven. And I, I would visit her and we'd talk about life. And eventually I'd, I'd get around to asking, you know, how, how are you doing? How, what's the Lord teaching you? How are you growing? What are you learning? And I never really got very far in that, but she would kind of in, in a roundabout way tell me that she'd been baptized and she was forgiven and she'd been in the church for 100 years. Um, and what I started to perceive in her and then heard firsthand through conversation um, was that we focus way too much uh, on sin and in dwelling sin in preaching. And it was no wonder that people didn't want to listen or didn't get anything out of sermons. And though that was somewhat painful to hear, um, I took courage in those comments, knowing the history, knowing where we were as a church. The Lord used them to show me that the gospel was being preached. The gospel was starting to chip away, starting to move some things around, maybe even break in for the first time. See, for this dear woman and for so many, sin and any talk of doing business with sin, well, that was back there. That was done. I've said the prayer. I've been baptized. I've taught Sunday school for 50 years. Just tell me that God loves me. Build me up. Tell me a story that's going to make me feel good. Those are the sermons that really resonate with me. Brothers and sisters, to understand the greatness of God's grace, we must understand how unworthy we are to receive it day after day after day. King David prayed in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgression. Cleanse me, wash me, cleanse me from sin. Luke 18, the tax collector or murderer or abuser or rapist. I mean, take your pick. This is, this is the contrast Jesus is making with the religious. Said that, said that prayer, taught that Sunday school for 100 years. Contrast he's making with his head down, beating his chest. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We must know what makes sola gratia necessary. Okay, let's move to the very beautiful Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, just stop right there. That should absolutely blow us away. There it is. But God, Ephesians 2 verse 4. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones was right. It says, you want the gospel? Here's the gospel, the entire thing in two words. But God. So with, with, all, with all that's come before, being, being dead, in sin, no, no desire, no ability, open hostility to our maker, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. All the hopelessness 
of those first three verses, it just gives way to this hope beyond measure of God's great love. God has poured out his favor on all the redeemed in Christ for no other reason than his mercy, no other reason than his love. You know, we're in that season of homecoming now, and schools will choose their homecoming courts and the homecoming king and queen. And I went next door here just a couple of weeks ago and watched the, there's some fun pageantry that goes along with a homecoming. But how is the court chosen? Who gets to be homecoming king and homecoming queen? And just thinking about this a little bit. Usually it's those who have stand out in some way academically or athletically. And yes, I know it stings, but I've seen it enough that physical appearance is not overlooked in that decision. They've probably been involved with lots of class activities. I've been in leadership roles. These are, these are the characteristics of those chosen for the court. But there's no, no desirable characteristics, no desirable attributes for any of us for God to choose to the court. He does this out of his own sovereign choice, out of his own sovereign grace. And here's where we lean back into Ephesians chapter 1. If we have every blessing in Christ, even as, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption, the sovereign, unmerited gift of God, the sovereign election of God. And, and that's, make sure I say that in that order, because that's really how we need to think about this. The gift of God in his election of his own. And this is that necessary doctrine of salvation. I think we get a little squirrely around because we're not sure how to talk about it or wonder if we really understand it enough to talk about. Yet to the rest of the world and all different flavors of the church, it's this doctrine that seems to be on blinking lights and the sign of every Reformed church. Brothers and sisters, if you run across a pastor or a teacher who says that they understand this doctrine of election completely, then just walk out. And at the same time, when you run across a pastor or a teacher who denies the doctrine of election, then walk out. We're talking about the divine mind, the divine will of God in choosing, gifting humanity with salvation when he has absolutely no obligation to do so. Well, if he chooses some and not others, well, then that's not fair and that's not loving. Okay, we need to rewind the last 15 minutes. You don't want fair. You don't want God. You're dead already. Because of his mercy, because of his love, he gives the gift of life forever to those that he chooses. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He is God now consider this through the history of the church for just a minute. God chose Abraham. Why did he choose Abraham? Why Abraham over any of the other descendants of Shem, descendants of Noah, descendants of Seth, descendants of Adam? God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael. God chose Jacob over Esau. Deuteronomy 7, we read God choosing Israel to be his treasured possession out of sheer undeserved love. I want to read these verses for you. 
This is Deuteronomy 7, uh, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They weren't any stronger. They weren't any more desirable than the other nations. They could just as easily been listed among the other nations under the judgment of God. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Israelites. They are God's people only by grace. He loves them. That's the only reason. Here's where I'd like to move from God's uh, favor toward us, his provision now for us. It seems to be the natural movement of grace. God loves and showers us with his favor, and he gives. He provides salvation in Christ. He chooses us, that, that's his favor, and he provides by changing our hearts, giving us new life. And we can follow the apostles' words in Romans chapter 8. Uh, to see all that God has provided. He gives us new life. He unites us to Christ. He grants us the faith to receive this grace. He justifies. He adopts. And he continues this work of sanctification unto the day of glory. That's the but God. God providing every piece of salvation in Christ by his grace alone. See, no one in the church is going to deny grace uh, outright. Uh, the Catholic Church did not deny grace uh, in the time of the Reformation. It was the alone part. That was the crux of the argument. They said we're saved by grace and faith. And many in the church considered that, that faith to be a work unto salvation. Grace is God's part and faith is our part was the argument. Uh, that, that's still held by many today. But we've learned that it is all of grace. If we're dead, how do we generate faith? Faith itself must be given. It must be received by God's grace. You know, our house is built on a slope, and like every other house in central Arkansas. And so all the water flows from the, uh, the west to the east. We have this river that goes down. And so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at how to terrace or potentially level off some of the rocks and dirt there to, to move the water away from the house and, and channel it away. And considering the grace of God, the grace of God is moving only one way. It's only moving downward. It's only flowing from him to us. This grace can only be received, including the grace to believe. The very fact that I can stand here and share this word and share the gospel is entirely of the Lord. He gives us himself. He makes the way for us to know him, a way for us to enjoy him. We're redeemed in Christ, sold to Jesus for the price of his own blood. And just as Jesus is raised from the dead, we are raised to newness of life with him. That's life we enjoy right now and look forward to only by his grace. So why does sola gratia still matter? How much 
what should be our response to this? Um, you know, we've all given gifts from time to time. We've all received gifts. What makes the best gifts so good? Usually they're unexpected, but almost always they're undeserved. This can't happen. This is just too good to be true. It's too much. We're preparing to move back to, uh, to Michigan. Over a year ago, we didn't know where we were going to live. I'm looking online, sort of crunching the numbers and thinking, hmm, you know, we've got a pop-up camper. Maybe I can put that in one of our parents' lot. Uh, we didn't know what was going to happen a month before we were going to move. Then we get a call from my father-in-law, and he said he had been praying uh, with his wife, and they, they decided they were going to move back into her house, and so there was a home open for us to move into. What do you say to that? Other than, wow, thank you. All I could do, I wasn't working, I couldn't pay him back. All I could do was receive with thanksgiving. Do we comprehend the gift that God has given to us in Jesus? Are we still amazed by the grace of God? I think we seem to be amazed by just about anything but grace today. You know, we see the destruction of fires and floods, and we're amazed. We see the, the Grand Canyon, and we're amazed. Or you see the northern lights, and we're amazed. We hear the voice of a 15-year-old on national TV, and we're amazed. We taste the juicy little pink on the inside prime rib, and we are amazed. Um, but are we too easily amazed? Too easily satisfied. You know, as we enjoy these things and delight and, and wonder in these things that we see and hear and touch, does it move us to praise? Does it move us to thanksgiving? To be more amazed at the, the favor and the provision of God. That's why he gives us these good things. That's why he gives us senses to enjoy or not enjoy the world around us. So that we, we might be more amazed with him, more satisfied with him. There's nothing more amazing than the grace of God. That's what Pastor John Newton knew as he wrote that hymn we're so familiar with. You heard Heath playing it during the offering. Okay, pick the most vain, immoral, worthless person you know. Could be yourself or someone else. John Newton was worse. Guarantee. We don't have time to talk about his life. But he was exhibit A for why salvation must be God's grace alone. And that song, Amazing Grace, it's one of the most sung, most recorded hymns in human history. And I think that's telling for us. It tells us that we can grow indifferent and be bored with grace. We can hear and, and sing that hymn and not be moved by it, not be stirred in the heart to, to humility and praise, where we fall on our knees and say, oh God, be merciful to a wretch like me. And then stand on our feet with boldness. I was lost, but I'm found. Blind, but now I see. A child of wrath, now a child of God. This is his mercy. This is his sovereign grace. And it certainly doesn't hurt for us to ask ourselves now and then, why me? Why me, Lord? Just by asking yourself that question, it, it forces you to, to look, 
the sinfulness of sin. Why me? And maybe where sin needs to be rooted out and attacked more in your life, but also moves us to marvel at God's grace, to praise him, to give him thanks. Another reason why this principle matters so much, if there's any doctrine that should motivate us to pursue God and to pursue others, it is the doctrine of sola gratia. God's grace produces gratitude. It's humbling. This humility should mark our time in prayer, should mark our teaching, our service. We'll want to use this means of grace then in in prayer and searching the scriptures, availing ourselves of the sacraments, meeting together to grow ourselves, to grow and to reach others. We want others to know this grace. Any understanding of God's his grace, it moves us in a direction very opposite of what some refer to as the frozen chosen mentality. God's sovereign, he's working it out. We must trust him. Not untrue, it even sounds spiritual, but then there's no, there's no engagement, no attempt to reach others with the gospel. We must constantly guard against being too comfortable with grace. Too comfortable with our Christianity. The life of grace is not about ease and comfort and safety. And we mentioned this last week that saving faith takes up a cross and follows Jesus. That's not comfortable. I appreciate what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a good bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. There's a good post by Brett McCracken this last week where he offers some signs that may indicate when we are too comfortable as Christians. I'm not going to list them all, but just to give you a few of them here. If there is no friction, if there is no tension between your life and Christ and the partisan political scene that's around us right now, uh, then you're probably too comfortable. Um, and just bite it all off. Uh, there's going to be some disconnect. The Christian's going to have a prophetic word for the Democrat, for the Republican, for the Independent, you name it. Um, another sign is if your friends or coworkers or neighbors are surprised to learn that you're a Christian and that you're a regular at church, we're just easily blending in and talking with you is no different than talking to an unbeliever, then we're likely too comfortable in our Christianity. One more. If you never think about or remember the Sunday sermon on Monday, you may be getting too comfortable as a Christian. And that's not just to boost the preacher's ego. God's word is living and active. It demands things of us. It requires things of us. And if we're apathetic, we're not engaging in that, if we're only feeling affirmed but never challenged by the preaching of the word or life in the church, then something is likely out of place. We will find that as we respond to grace, as we move out into those uncomfortable circumstances, into those uncomfortable moments, that is where transformation occurs. It's in those times that we really, we really learn to trust God and lean upon him, not on ourselves. 
We see God is, is in his gracious work moving us from that place of discomfort to that place of delight, delighting more in Jesus. God's grace will be all the more amazing as we live it before others. He's merciful. He loves us. His divine love has adopted us in Christ. And that is a glorious grace that demands our praise. We can't get over this. Salvation is entirely of the Lord. And if our hope and our joy forever is in him and is entirely of his doing, then he alone is glorified and gets the glory for all of that. And we're going to wrap up our series next week uh, with that goal in mind. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed at your grace that you would look upon us in mercy love and deliver us we thank you O God for this reminder this morning that though dead in our sin incapable unable no desire uh, that you have shown us your grace Uh, we thank you Lord work this truth deep into our hearts that it would form us and move us to proclaim this grace in the lives of one another in the lives of our community and those that we see each day. May we go now in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.